Welcome into the latest episode of Fish Bites, a podcast found via Fish Stripes, SB Nation, also heard on Slam Radio XM, Sirius XM. My name is Danny Martinez, and ladies and gentlemen, I have survived one of the craziest weekends of sports and non-sports related issues in South Florida in a while. Number one, regardless of whether you're listening to this prior to Hurricane Dorian, in the middle of Hurricane Dorian, or after Hurricane Dorian, I hope that you are safe. I hope you and your loved ones are safe. I hope your pets, your fur babies are safe. Uh, You know, we in South Florida make a lot of jokes about hurricanes. I know I do as well. I've only evacuated once and that's because I was dragged to evacuate once. Uh, But I still hope that you took the precautions to be safe so that we can continue having this conversation and so that we continue this relationship and at the end of the day so that we are all okay. Now, a, a very different type of hurricane just ravished Davie, Florida this weekend because the Miami Dolphins, and don't worry, this is not a Miami Dolphins podcast, but the Miami Dolphins have linked themselves now to the Miami Marlins by finally finalizing and cementing the fact that this is a full teardown rebuild. We're aiming for the future. 2019, we're kind of punting on this year. When you trade your left tackle and Laramie Tunsil, and Kenny Stills as well, the, your wide receiver, one of the leaders in the clubhouse per se, depending on where you fall in that conversation, you are clearly showing that you are now the second professional team in South Florida to go on a full rebuilding mode. I saw a lot of criticism there. For those of you that might not know, I wrote for Finn Maniacs prior to coming over to Fish Stripes. I wrote for the Dolphins. And, well... This is different for them. The the Marlins, you know, I sent this out right away. Whoever was here by 2017 was already a diehard. If you were a Marlins fan by 2017, you had already been dwindled or not dwindled, but rather brought down the fan base from, oh, casuals and bandwagons. No, it was just diehards now. This is new territory for the Finns. Uh, you know, even in the 1-15 in 15 year, that was just a really bad team. But there was nothing prior, no precedent to saying, all right, we are full rebuilding. We are full tanking. It'll be different. I don't know if a Finns fan base, especially some of those who I'm just going to say it, are not built for it the way that the Marlins are. Or the Marlins fans are, at least some of the Marlins fans are, are ready for what is going to be a very difficult 2019 season. For the Miami Dolphins, a very different type of hurricane, but a hurricane nonetheless, and one that I have been a part of. So I wanted to give my two cents in there, especially since it does parlay very well with the Marlins. The Marlins have gone through this. We have seen the fruits of the Marlins rebuild, not the ultimate prize. We can't confuse those two. We haven't seen the ultimate winning in the major league level. Absolutely not far from it. Years from that. But you can only grade a rebuild by what level it's at at the moment, what stage, what phase. And the Marlins rebuild at the moment, we are starting to see the fruits and the positives of their plan. If the Dolphins can have the equivalent of what the Marlins have done in baseball, okay, one of the quickest turnarounds in baseball when we're talking from a farm system standpoint and from a pitching standpoint. If Dolphins can do that, I am all up for this. I think that the fan base will survive. If they can't, if they are more Chicago White Sox or if they are more Cleveland Browns than Atlanta Braves or Houston Astros or again, even at the moment at the phase that they're in, Miami Marlins, it'll be a very interesting dynamic 
to see what happens in South Florida sports. But you're not here to listen about football. I'm going to stop talking about football. Let's go ahead and talk about what you're here for, which is Miami Marlins baseball and baseball in general. Today is a jam-packed, and I know I say that every once in a while, but really a jam-packed episode. We're going to dissect and open up my latest article on fishstripes.com. Uh, so far, it's already gotten a lot of good feedback just released today. If you want to go see it, it is titled A Five-Step Off-Season Plan for the Marlins to Improve in 2020. And it's very self-explanatory, but we're going to unpack that and we're going to discuss it a little bit today. Also going to attack two questions that were sent my way. One is in regard to Isan Diaz. The, the question is, uh, you know, when we're looking at the process of Isan Diaz, what variables show us that his process, what he's actually doing is better than the results right now or the opposite of that are what we seeing at the moment on a results oriented perspective right average the stats that he's putting up is that actually indicative of the player that he is who we thought would be much much better now the answer right off the bat is we cannot make any final assessments on Isan Diaz when he's getting a cup of coffee I think most individuals with a baseball acumen understand that but I'm still going to try to answer that question as best as possible we're also going to do pitching performance of the week and hitter performance of the week. And then the second thing that was sent to me was a feedback of, hey, I love the fact that we have weekly segments on hitter of the week and pitcher of the week. But can you touch on some of the long uh, season numbers again, some of the season performances? I do that every once in a while, but this reader wanted me to do it this week, especially since the offense has had its ups and many downs. So we're going to discuss a little bit about the overall numbers for the years, what players are showing that they might belong, what players are showing that they might not belong, the good and yes, the very, very ugly. But let's go ahead and start off with my article again, fishstripes.com. It's a five-step off-season plan for the Marlins to improve in 2020. The reality is, and I hit this on my intro is that there are two types of fans, right? There's the type of fan that knew exactly what 2019 was going to look like. They might have had varying levels of optimism or pessimism, but they knew that this was a rebuilding year with a lot of losing and it had to do with development. Then there's the other type of fan where this year has been miserable for you, where this year cannot end soon enough. I, I say that the, the, the finish of this season is almost merciful, right? It's merciful because of the many ups and the many downs that that person has had to experience, the many losses that that person has had to experience. And then, of course, look, there's the individual like myself and like many of you out there that knew what was going to happen this year. And yet it still sucks and it still is unfortunate and difficult to see the losing take place. We can have insight. We can have a nuanced perspective on the rebuild. It doesn't make your favorite team losing any less palatable. Now, for some of us, it does. For some of us, we understand that this isn't about winning. I get that, but it still sucks at the end of the day. So what has to change, right? Because the, the, the pitching has been okay. The rebranding was successful. The fact that they have a consensus top seven farm system in baseball is huge, huge. Even if we're all about what are they doing at the major league level? Okay, that's fine. This top five system in baseball is going to come up to the major league level at some point. It's huge. But the reality is that 2020 cannot be a repeat of 2019 when we're talking about on-field performance at Marlins Park. 
Now, I don't say that as a threat. Oh, well, what's going to happen to the Marlins if more people don't show up? You know, people say that. Look, revenue sharing in baseball has eliminated the need for attendance to be a big deal or a big part of your pie chart when you're talking from a business perspective. The Marlins will say all of the right things. We need more people. Of course we need more people. And of course it'll help to have more revenue. But revenue sharing, external sponsorships, all that stuff has made attendance much less important than it was, goodness, even 15 years ago. So I'm not talking about that perspective. I'm just talking about a perspective that if you're going to build something in Miami again, whether you're trying to get the, the players or rather the fans that have been scorned, the older fans, or you're just trying to get the newer fans, you have to win. You have to win. And 2020 is not about winning a World Series. 2020 is not even about winning a playoff spot, but it's about, man, you need more wins. Like just you need more W's. You need more wins and you need less losses you would have now had two years of continuous losing it allowed you to improve your farm system you lost a lot even despite having a top 15 starting staff in baseball depending on what statistical measure you're looking at but now it's time to win again so here are the five things and i'll talk briefly about each of them and then you can read the extensive uh article on fishstripes.com but the first one is you need to build on a strength you need to build on a strength, and as soon as I say strength, two things should pop into your head, either Brian Anderson or the pitching staff. You can't necessarily build on Brian Anderson because you can't clone him and put eight other ones out there on the field with him. So what do you do? You build on the pitching staff. When you're talking about a Pablo Lopez, a Caleb Smith, your all-star in Sandia, Contrera, Yamamoto, other individuals that are already MLB ready, this offseason is about them all taking that next step. The longest leash probably is with Jordan Yamamoto. I was surprised he even got called up this year directly from AA. But with the others, regardless of age, a friendly reminder, Pablo Lopez is only 23. Regardless of age, this is about taking that next step in their development. We're now starting to enter that phase where are you a starter, Sandy? Or is someone going to come for that job and you might end up in the pen? I think he's a starter long term. This offseason is also about the understanding that the likes of Sixto Sanchez and Trevor Rogers and Nick Nider, who was just on ETS earlier this week with a great uh, interview, go ahead and, and make sure you pick up and listen to that interview. They are knock, knock, knock it on your door, and they're coming soon. Sixto Sanchez might come as soon as spring training. He might be ready. He might force someone out of that out of that rotation into the pen. And Edward Cabrera, who was just added to the top 100 uh, for MLB.com, meaning that he's now almost a consensus top 100 prospect across different ranking sites, is coming as well. But, but none of that is a surprise. So far, you're listening to me and you're saying, OK, Danny, that's not really a great offseason plan. I could have told you that. Yeah, that's great. Here's my first wrinkle. And here's where some might not agree with me. I love youth, but there is a place for veteran leadership and veteran performance, not just leadership in this rotation. When you're able to bring a veteran free agent into this rotation, you do two things. Number one, you add consistency to what is an inconsistent staff. The Miami Marlins, and this is not hyperbole, this is objective. The Miami Marlins, for months at a time this season, and no, it was not all dependent on Zach Gallen. They were doing this before Zach Gallen was even promoted, for those that always go to Gallen as a counter here, had a top five pitching rotation in baseball. I know, I tweeted it out every chance I got. A top five pitching rotation in baseball. They have also gone stretches where they've had a bottom 10 pitching rotation in baseball. I tweeted those out too. 
you're going to have that when the average age of your starters over a week, if you take out Hector Noesi, is 23.7 months, 23 years and 7 months. It's, that's going to occur. So what do you do? You bring in someone who's a veteran who you know will give you at least six innings every time he touches the mound, every five days. He's going to go out there. He's going to be able to not just lead the young arms. He's going to be able to give you consistency, which is the first point. And the second one, he's going to be able to save the young arms. It's great to have a lot of depth and talent in the pitching rotation. They already have it. Listen, if they don't sign one of these names I'm going to give you in a second, I'm not going to riot because they have enough pitching talent and enough youth that they can find five arms. They can find eight arms over the course of 2020 to go and take them out with good stuff. I don't mean just replacement level players. I mean good stuff. Eight arms that could do that. But bring consistency and don't force yourself to only depend on those young arms accruing significant innings with their first year, second year in pro ball, in major league pro ball. Go find yourself a tier two veteran starting pitcher. And the reason I say that is because, listen, the Marlins, with all of the pitching talent that they have, and with not being in a pennant race quite yet, don't need to go and get a tier one pitching free agent like a Garrett Cole, like a Strasburg. That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. If the Marlins are in those talks, I mean, I guess congratulations. It means that they're trying to spend. It means that they're trying to show the fan base that we are going to win more games this year. But for me, it would never even I would never even entertain that type of conversation. Not yet, especially not when you then look into 2021, 2022, and there's a lot more starting pitching talent, tier one, tier two there, that you could add to what then would be a more mature starting rotation and likely much closer to the playoffs. I think if you're telling me that we need to go after Garrett Cole or a Strasburg this year, you are one year premature. That does not mean, however, that there is not talent to be had. There are Tier 2, Tier 3 starting pitching talent, which are veterans aged 29, 30, 31, which I would sit down at the table and say, this is who I want to identify as the person who's going to come, eat up some of the innings for the young guys, and not have to blow out their arm and give me consistency on the mound, which is something you lack when you do not have a veteran presence. Michael Walker from the Cardinals, a Jordan Lyles, a Julio Tehran, a Jake Odorizzi. These are all players which are not going to demand four or five-year contracts. These are all players you could get for one, two, three years at the most. With good value market AAV and your average salaries for the year, you're going to be able to get deals. That's what I'm trying to get to the point here with this type of crop of player. And this type of crop of player will be able to account for those two things, which is bringing you more consistency to a rotation that averages 24 years of age, while also allowing you to not overuse those 23-year-old arms that you have coming up, as well as the prospects. Number one would be addressing the fact that you could get creative with the starting rotation and not just have to depend on those young arms. Go and build on a strength do it via free agency. I'm not asking you to get two of these guys. Get one and plug them in with what will be a very talented and young rotation. Number two is I would address the bullpen because goodness gracious, they need to address the bullpen without breaking the bank. I start the section off by saying that there was a time when seemingly every franchise, including your very own Miami Marlins, remember the Kenley Jensen days, were chasing big time 
pen free agents to build a quote-unquote super pen, a Super Bowl pen. And then everyone that did that failed. Because with the exception of a very few select group of arms, bullpen arms are the most volatile unit in baseball. Most volatile unit in baseball. You look at uh, bullpen performances from teams ranging yearly, and there is no correlation whatsoever. A team can have the best bullpen in 2018, and it's a middling bullpen by 2019. It's a great bullpen in 2020, and it's awful again in 2021. There's no correlation between bullpen units from year to year. So what have teams done? They have stopped overspending on bullpen pieces. And they've become more efficient buyers of pen arms. Look no further than your old Miami Marlins this year. Remember Nick Anderson, who you were able to flip for an elite hitting prospect in Jesus Sanchez? Yeah, well, Nick Anderson was acquired for nothing during the offseason. The Marlins need to have more Nick Andersons in their system. So while I would spend on starting pitching this year, I wouldn't necessarily spend heavy on a Tier 1 or even Tier 2 bullpen piece. But here's my wrinkle again. My wrinkle is I don't think you even have to spend at all. Because what I think the issue is right now is that the Marlins are simply misusing their bullpen pieces. I don't know why, but they just are. And, and the perfect example of this is Ryan Stanek that they acquired from the Rays. Listen, he did not get on a plane from Tampa to Miami or on a chartered bus or however he made his way down south. And on that trip, almost miraculously, lose all of his talent. You acquired one of the better openers and relief pitchers in baseball when you acquired Ryan Stanek. And now he can't pitch? And now now he, he blows, you know, save after save opportunity? Stanek sets. Here's the pitch. Swing line drive. Base hit left field. Kendrick will score from third. Turner's around third. Coming home. Front of the plate. Not in time. Turner dives in with a winning run. A curly W's in the box. Rendon has done it. A single left to score two with his third hit of the game. Anthony Rendon wins it for the Nationals. What, Ryan Stanek is now not a good pitcher? No. No, nothing changed. He, he didn't put on the Marlins uniform and become devoid of talent. But they're using him differently. They took one of the most dominant openers in baseball, which is how the Rays were using him, and they are now using him as exclusively until Jose Urania comes back as a closer, as a late-inning pitcher. Now, I am not naive enough to think that it's just about where they are using them. It is also about how he's being used. Something is off. Something is different the way that the catcher is managing the game with him. There's something in the analytic report that the Rays saw with Ryan Stanek that the Marlins have not identified. But this is a perfect example of not maximizing the value because, once again, Ryan Stanek did not become someone different when he put on a Marlins uniform. He has just been used differently. When you ask me if I have to go outside of the Miami Marlins to fill a bullpen and to make a league-worst bullpen much better, or at least average, the answer is no. You have everything you need inside. You have internal options. A Ryan Stanek, a Jose Urania, a Yarlin Garcia, Bryce, Keller, Kinley, Tyron Guerrero. These are all players that have prospect, or rather profile arms of dominant bullpen pieces. But we need to learn how to better use them. I'm not going to pretend how to do that. I'm absolutely not an analytics development person. I will never pretend to do that. I can only observe what I see. But 
goodness gracious, Stanek is the perfect example. The Marlins have good arms. The Marlins have arms that I promise you, of, if we were able to transfer all of these arms to the Rays system, suddenly they would all be Nick Anderson. Even Nick Anderson, remember, he was really good for a while, and then he started falling off, falling off, falling off. And when he gets back to the Rays, now he's the best reliever in baseball again? Exactly. Because it's not about the player as much when you get to this level already. It is how he's being utilized. And something has gone away with the Marlins bullpen. I don't think they need to spend heavy on it. They just simply need to do a better job of knowing and assessing their players and utilizing their talents the way that they should be. Number three, I need you to sign a bat. And I need you to sign a leader. But it cannot be an or. It has to be an and. What I mean by that is that the Marlins last year took the approach, I'm going to get either a bat or a leader. Either a bat or a leader. And they got two great leaders in Neil Walker and in Curtis Granderson. The issue here is that because it was or, not and, there's been no offensive production. If you combine Curtis Granderson and Neil Walker, which is a little manipulation of statistical analysis, but nonetheless, we're going to do it here, they combine for a negative 0.9 war. Collectively, they have almost lost you one complete game above what a replacement level would do from AAA. A replacement level player from AAA. For those of you that aren't familiar with Windsor Bun Replacement, it basically tells you player X has given you this total contribution to your team compared to a typical replacement level player. Granderson and Walker have given you negative production over anyone else that they could have just pulled from AAA. That's an issue because they went with or. I need them this year to go with and. I want a veteran and a bat. The same player, he just does both. For those of you that are saying, well, that's a lot easier said than done. Oh, I completely agree. But if they could have convinced DJ LeMahieu, which is someone who, again, you'll see in the article, I presented as the one target that I would have gone for last year. He would have been perfect for a rebuild. If we had this podcast at that point, I would have vocalized it. But I have already vocalized it via social media. If they would have gone, how different of a season that could have been with what DJ LeMahieu has done with the Yankees. Now, there's ballpark factors there. I think it wouldn't have been as great of a season, especially with the run uh, support around him. But him and Avicel Garcia are the two players that I wanted the Marlins to go after last year because they were bats and leaders. And they were good. And they've been good this year. Much better than who they were able to identify last year and sign last year in Curtis Granison and Neil Walker. These are the type of players that the Marlins need to be able to tackle and target this year. Now, my targets that you'll see me list on here vary very much so in salary and in years. But they're the same ones that I've been telling you throughout the year. I'm not going to change very much my perspective on who I would target. And Nicholas Castellanos, who might have just hit himself out of our price range with the way he's playing with the Cubs, would have been a perfect addition at the right price. And he, stay, he still might be. Only 28 for the 20. He's 20 years old for the 2020 season. Marcelo Zuna is a free agent this year. I don't know. There are some rumblings that the Cardinals might try to extend him, but he might hit the free agency market. He's only going to be 29. That's someone that I would look at. Yasiel Puig, an Avisil Garcia again, a Corey Dickerson, a Jose Abreu for first base. He's a little older. He would be 33, but it would be an interesting dynamic. Remember, you could always move Garrett Cooper out to right, move Brian Anderson back to third, and you have yourself quite a power potential in your lineup 
And then lastly, someone like a Justin Smoke, lefty from first base, also gives you power. These are the type of players that you are likely going to want to target in a 2020 offseason. For those of you that are saying an Anthony Rendon, I'm sorry, I don't think that that's going to happen. The Marlins are not going to be that type of spender in 2020. I personally believe that they can be a type of spender, maybe not to the extent of an Anthony Rendon or Bryce Harper or Manny Machado, but a, a heavy type of spender by 2021, by 2022. Those two free agency classes are wild, especially with uh, second base and shortstop help. I think second base will still be Isandia as the answer, but nonetheless, shortstop help. Something to consider. If the Marlins roll out opening day 2020, I'm blanking on who they play opening day, but if they roll out opening day 2020, might be the Phillies, and it is the same starting staff as this year, and it is the same offensive uh, lineup as this year, there is nothing overly worrisome about that because it's a rebuild and because you are tr- they, they should be better. Like This exact rotation, a year older, should be better than where they are right now and this exact lineup should be better than where they are right now it's a rebuild that's okay if they do that but if you really want to sell to your fan base that the 2020 season is a true stepping stone and what i mean by that is that it's almost a launching pad the first two years are supposed to suck i'm sorry if you still don't understand that but in a rebuild look if you're a dolphins fan get ready for this you're we're living this as a marlins fan right now get ready for it as a dolphins fan it's supposed to be bad But that third year is supposed to be a big stepping stone. If you want to sell that, go get one of these bats, put them in the middle of your lineup, and it'll add you some wins. Number four, extend Brian Anderson. I'm not going to talk much about this because I already discussed it. I run an entire article on it. The season-ending injury does nothing to change that. Extend Brian Anderson. Show him in the fan base an excellent move of good faith. Lock up one of the better players of his upcoming core and have him extended. And then fifth, the fifth thing that I would do this offseason to make sure that 2020 is a much better year and a likely launching pad stepping stone type of season is you have to address, and I cannot stress this enough, you have to address the managerial position incredibly early. Listen, the day after the season is over, Donnie should know if he's staying or if he's going. The day after. If he is going, two weeks after, they should have an understanding. No later than two weeks exactly who is going to be the next captain, the next manager, the next leader of this team. The Miami Dolphins took a sweet time with getting their captain, their team manager, their coach, their head coach and their staff of this rebuild a sweet time and then he started having issues coach Flo Brian Flores started having issues because he couldn't fill out the rest of his staff because they were already getting filled up by other players and other franchises that had already filled the managerial position the Marlins are in a very different situation in the rebuild obviously much more advanced much more excelled at the moment they cannot make that mistake if Donnie Madding if, if you know if Donnie baseball is going to continue being the leader here, whether I agree with that or whether I disagree with that. He needs to know right away, give him the keys, and go. If not, you thank him for everything he's done, maybe you give him a position in the organization, and you go find his replacement right away. Because here's the thing, a rebuilding team requires an identity, especially in what some consider, like myself, to be a meaningful 2020 season. You want that identity to start from day one in the offseason. You want that coach, that manager, if he's good at what he does, to contact all of those players from day one in the offseason. 
build the identity right away. Some names, and there's a lot that I'm going to give you here. Some names that I would pay very close attention to. I have my own personal preferences. I'll tell you who my personal preferences are after I give you the names. Eddie Rodriguez. You might be wondering who in the world is Eddie Rodriguez and why is he the first person that Danny is stating? Number one, he's my preference. Eddie Rodriguez is who I would peg as the Marlins' next manager. He is. He has a long history of being within baseball and being successful. He led, the, I believe, the 2019 U.S. Uh, national team to a gold medal. He has played around young players before. He's known as a good balance between a, man, a coach's manager, or rather a player's manager, and also having just a very high baseball acumen. I don't know where he is on the analytics spectrum, but that would be my first preference. It doesn't hurt that he's from Miami. It doesn't hurt that he's fully bilingual. It doesn't hurt that a lot of individuals praise him from end to end when you're talking about his baseball acumen. You still probably don't know who Eddie Rodriguez is. Not many people follow the, the USA national team. Not many people understand or know who he is. That's fine. Wikipedia him. Google him. He would be my first preference. After Eddie Rodriguez, there's a million and a half names. Not really. There's a handful of names that you'll know right off the bat. Carlos Beltran. Trey Hillman, I believe, has an inside track already. Very analytically driven, already in the franchise. Mark DeRosa, you hear him on MLB Network. He had a good playing career prior to being an analyst. Is someone who I think is a good balance between traditional and analytics. Also very young. Sandy Alomar Jr. with the Indians organization. George, uh, well, no, you know, Posada, okay? I, I think that that would be interesting with the optics, quite frankly. But if Jorge Posada really wants to coach... He's already within the Marlins organization, and he's a good friend of Jeter. The optics of that would probably be very interesting how they handled it with the Marlins, but would be someone who I think should be a coach in this league. A catcher, one of the most brilliant minds. Again, also bilingual. It would be interesting. Joe Espada, I think, could also have an inside track, also has a relationship with Derek Jeter, also very analytic-oriented in the Astros organization, Raul Ibanez, and Keith Johnson. Keith Johnson is a great manager in the Mars organization. He coaches the New Orleans affiliate. He's someone that I believe deserves a chance at the major league level. All of those names that I just told you are individuals that I think would be excellent choices for the Marlins. And listen, they're going to have their own managerial search committee. I understand that. I'm not trying to say anything out of the ordinary that's too crazy here. But I think that all of those names are someone that you should keep in mind and think, hmm, interesting they're interviewing him danny said that a few months ago i think these are names that'll be interesting i would also add that anytime you have some marlins connection you probably should get a look freddie gonzalez is already with the team we'll see what they think about freddie juan pierre is ready with the organization that's someone i really think out of all the names i'm listing here in this section second section the marlins will give a look at Mike Lowell is always in Miami. You just run into him every once in a while when you're at a local store, whatever the case, when he's not on MLB Network, is also someone that I think I think out of everyone, the fans would love Mike Lowell the most. That would be incredibly interesting. All of the optics of Jorge Posada would be the complete opposite of Mike Lowell because everyone would love the Mike Lowell hire. And then Joe Girardi. Listen, Joe is someone who has had success everywhere he's gone. And maybe he's a little forthright. Maybe he's a little aggressive in his in his, in his his way. I don't know. He, he was with Jeter. I don't know what that relationship is like. But Joe Girardi is probably the most successful that you could get out of all the names that I listed. He would come in and he would make sure that this rebuild is ran in the most effective way possible. Is he the guy? We don't know. But should he be an option? Absolutely. 
So once again, Eddie Rodriguez, preference. Carlos Beltran, Trey Hillman, Mark DeRosa, Sandy Alomar Jr., Jorge Posada, Joe Espada, Raul Ibanez, Keith Johnson, Freddie Gonzalez, Juan Pierre, Mike Lowe, and Joe Girardi. That would be my short list of candidates moving forward for the Miami Marlins to identify as their next manager if they decide the second after the season is over that Donnie Mattingly is not the individual that's moving forward. If that's the case, that's the way that I would go. On to the second part. The question was about Isan Diaz and the fact that, listen, he has had his ups and he has had his downs in his first cup of coffee since coming to the majors. No one is going to counter that. Isan himself is not going to counter that. He knows he needs to be doing more. However, there is an argument to be made, and this is where that listener was coming from in the email, that her, his, they're his peripherals which means the things that we might not so evidently see when we're looking at a player's stats, show us that his process of hitting and just simply his process of being a player might be better than the results. So what do I mean by that? Well, number one, and this is really the most important one for me right off the bat, do you know that 23-year-old Isan Diaz is leading the Marlins in percentage, percentage of walks taken? He's walking 12.5% of the time. That is number one in the Marlins and very high in major leagues, which is telling you something. Number one, pitchers are being careful with him, which might have not necessarily been the case in AAA. Number two, it tells you pitchers have a lot more information on him, which is definitely not the case in AAA. And number three, it's telling you that Isan's very patient. He's, we've always known this. He is the on-base percentage king because he takes a lot of walks. When you're leading your organization and your professional MLB team, with just a few weeks of experience under your belt and taking walks, it is the most significant factor that you could tell me that Isan Diaz is going to be fine. Because it means he's seeing the ball well. It means that in a very Joey Votto-ish way, he knows his strike zone. Now, something that he is having difficulties with, however, is not strike zone, but rather pitch selection and pitch identification. Luis Davila said this under the tweet that I sent out, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. What we see him doing a lot is either overthinking or pitch selection because he's having difficulties with identifying the fastball and the changeup, either well ahead or behind of the fastball and getting thrown off on the changeup. That's where we're seeing contact issues. Now, those contact issues lead to the second peripheral point, which is that his batting average in balls and play is only 200. Now, this is incredibly low. This is the lowest on the team, and it's one of the lowest in all of baseball. Are going to get the call as Isan Diaz pops one up. Look at Charlie flying out there, and he makes a sliding catch. Charlie's been everywhere. Nice catch. Was a great catch. He was the only guy with a chance at that ball. If you are thinking, huh, where have I heard Danny talk about BABIP before, balls and batting, or batting average and balls in play, it's with George Alfaro. George Alfaro has a very high batting average with balls in play. This works with both of these players. A lot of individuals, even if I don't agree with it, believe that if you have a very low BABIP, it's because you're getting very unlucky. You're making a lot of contact, but it just keeps getting caught, keeps getting caught, keeps getting caught, you're getting out. And if you have a very high BABIP, like Jorge Alfaro, like George Alfaro, it's because you're getting very lucky and that eventually you will regress, that eventually the, the, the defense will line up correctly and that what you hit will get caught. The reason that I disagree with the fact that BABIP should solely, solely be used to discuss luck is because, number one, the reason George Afro gets a lot of balls down is because he hits them as hard as Giancarlo Stanton does. It's because his exit velocity and his hard hit rate are in the top 10% of baseball.
Isan Diaz isn't. Isan Diaz's hard hit rate and exit velocity, which is my third point, is actually below average at the moment. Maybe it's because he's being so patient that he's not striking and barreling up the pitches that he can. Maybe it's because he's not identifying the change in, in speed or velocity or off speed quickly enough yet because there's a learning curve. No one should expect Isan Diaz to come up here and be raking from the first get-go, which I think is the issue with a lot of Marlins fans. It, it could be either of these things. But the reality is that then you have mixed results to answer that question of whether his process is better than the actual results. The fact that he's walking and leading the Marlins in walk and walking percentage and above one of the highest in baseball is a very good sign that his process is better than the results and that the results will eventually catch up. The fact that his BABIP is incredibly low dictates that it should probably rise a little bit even if I don't fully buy that theory which means that his results should catch up however the fact that his exit velocity and hard hit percentage are both below average is something that needs to change because let me break it to you if those things remain below average that BABIP isn't increasing because if all you're doing are hitting grounders and weak pop-ups let me tell you that's not going to fall that exit velocity, that launch angle, that hard hit rate, all the analytical things that people roll their eyes to, we're starting to see more and more and more so that it is accurate, that it is truthful. Those things need to change because it won't matter how many times you walk. So then we're left with some dissonance. We're left with two points that tell us, hey, relax. Isan Diaz, Isan's going to be completely fine you could see the approach you could see him taking his walk you could see him identifying what to swing at and what not to swing at at least when we're talking about strike zone coverage the BABIP it's going to go up don't worry balls are going to stop dropping you have two things that are saying we're going to be okay but then you have that third thing that says either this is a learning curve because he's not barreling balls up and hitting them at the percentage that he was hitting them before at least when we're talking about hard hit and exit velocity and launch angle or is this a case where he is that type of player and he has to get by with just average hard hit percentage? I'm going to go ahead and be optimistic, but not even. I don't even have to be optimistic. I could be objective. Isan Diaz smashes balls. Every single level he's gone to, he has had a little bit of a learning curve. And then when he identifies the pitches, he smashes balls. This is not a guy who's going to have an average exit velocity and average hard hit percentage for his entire career. Might he be starting off like this? Yeah, sure. Go look up Alex Bregman's numbers when he first started. His first few months, people were calling him one of the biggest busts in baseball. There is a learning curve. Isan Diaz is going through this. If you are wondering what works for that argument, you have the information. If you are wondering what works against that argument, the only answer, when someone is not striking out above 30%, because he's not, when someone is walking at an elite level like he is, the only answer the only outcome is if he really does remain a below average hard hit percentage and exit velocity and launch angle type of hitter. If he does, then you're talking about a problem. But since he doesn't have that track record, and since quite frankly, he has the extreme opposite of it in the minor leagues, I'm going to safely assume and safely predict that Isan Diaz is going to be more than fine. And that we can come back and listen to this and you're going to see it play out. Does this cup of coffee, is this why this is important? Yes, that's where I disagree with Joe Forsaro. He goes on this whole thing of, oh, you can't rush prospects. And look, this is this is validating the fact that we shouldn't have rushed him. Okay, that's fine. I will choose to say that this is exactly why you get his learning curve out of the way now in a season that does not matter at all. 
You're not ruining him. If you were ruining him, his numbers would not have the best walk percentage on the team, and he'd be paying more than 30%. That's ruining a player. His approach is the same. He hasn't changed much. It's simply the fact that he has not barreled up balls the way that he has at the rate that he was doing in New Orleans and in Jacksonville. Get this cup of coffee out of the way and let's see what happens. All right, so we have the pitching performance of the week, the hitter, the hitters of the week, rather, and then we're going to look at some overall numbers after we touch on the hitters of the week. First, pitching performance of the week should not be a surprise to anyone. I, I love the fact that they've made it really easy on me the last few weeks. The last few weeks, we haven't even needed to have multiple candidates because Sandy Alcantara has come out two weeks in a row and just said, here, here's your hitting performance of the week, Danny. Don't do any homework. You're fine. This week, the same thing with a Robert Duggar. Robert Duggar, again, was acquired in the trade with the Mariners. He was acquired with Nick Neidert and, and Torres for D. Gordon. And I would have never bet that Duggar would have made his MLB debut prior to Nick Neidert, but that's what happens when Nick gets hurt. Again, listen to that interview with him on Earning Their Stripes. It was fantastic. Nick is great. He's a great person. Robert Duggar, hell of a game against the Reds. Seven innings pitched. Only three hits allowed, zero earned runs. He allowed a few runs, but they were unearned. Defensive mishaps. Seven strikeouts to one walk. When you get that from a Robert Duggar, someone who, if we are being bluntly honest, whether it's fair or not, most fans, most prospect sites would have as maybe the 15th best pitcher on the system. Maybe. When we're talking about ceiling, when we're talking about production, when you get that type of production from someone like that, it tells you and it is a testament to the fact that this rotation and the starting staff and this starting pitching system is filled with layers of depth. Because in a week where everyone was seemingly hitting the Marlins, maybe not hitting the starters as hard as they've been hitting the bullpen, but that's an entirely different story. Duggar gave you seven scoreless, at least when we're talking about earned innings with seven strikeouts and one walk. He used his mix of pitches very well. He kept hitters off balance. He showed you a little bit of velocity. He showed you what he could do. Is the ceiling on a Robert Duggar likely still a, a four or five guy? Maybe a Tom Kohler type of pitcher? Possibly. Not necessarily with stuff, but with profile and what you would think of him in a rotation piece? Maybe. But when you're young, when you just got promoted... And you put up one of the better starts of the entire season in what is not a below average starting staff. It's telling you something. Robert Duggar, I think, is the individual like we spoke about John Birdie. We spoke about how he can be the back the bracket buster for all the projected lineups that everyone sends me and that I send out to Twitter and that we all discuss. I think Robert Duggar could be that same guy for the starting staff next year. I think he would be the one that might get hurt if they sign and they go with my plan and they sign a veteran free agent. But if not, I think Robert Duggar just stands right up into the rotation and says, come try to get it. He had his first start against the Mets. It didn't go necessarily as planned, but he still gave you five innings pitched that day. He got hit around, and really it was just unfortunate. But then he comes back in his second start and his first start after the, the promotion since he had been sent down. He was the 26th man that day in a doubleheader against the Mets. And he shows you why this is still someone who you should be excited with with the understanding that he's likely the 15th highest ceiling or prospect in our system of pitchers. It's good stuff. It's good to see tip of the cap to Robert. I'm excited that he was able to do that. I'm excited to see him come out this week and show up another good performance. The hitters of the week, we have three. Starlin Castro, George Alfaro, Harold Ramirez. 
Sterling Castro has been on fire since after the trade deadline. So much so that he has started to bring up the conversation of what if the Marlins try to retain him. Now, they would not retain him at the salary that he's in. Look, make make no mistake. If somehow the Marlins do not buy out Starling Castro this offseason, I don't know. I'll quit this podcast because there's no way, there's no financial sense to not doing so. However, buying out a player does not mean that he cannot come back. Quite on the contrary, I think if you sit down, Starlin, and you say, we love your leadership, we love what you've done, we want you to be a part of this rebuilding team, we want you to finally uh, outlive a rebuild and be competitive. Because if you remember, every organization he's been, whether it's the Cubs or anywhere else, he's been there through the rebuild, and then they've shipped him off when they've gotten good. I don't know, maybe Starlin loves it down here. He's been a great leader. Maybe you buy him out, and then you bring him back on a one-year deal. Not minimum salary, but a manageable salary. Definitely not to start second base. Isan Diaz is going to have that position, but if he showed you that he can be good at short, he can be good at third. You have depth in a Starlin Castro and a leader in a Starlin Castro. And quite frankly, if we look at his second half numbers, someone who is not just a leader, like I mentioned before, but also can hit the ball a bit. 346, 346, 615 this week. 615 was a slugging. He's on base plus slugging is almost at 1,000 at 962. Two homers, six RBIs. He hasn't walked at all this week. He has gone up there swinging. He's either going to strike out, which he did eight times, or he's going to drive in some runs and get hits, which he did nine times. But a good week for Starlin Castro, a good second half for Starlin Castro, and at the very least, he's bringing up the concept of buying him out, but bringing him back anyway. For the second straight week, George Alfaro makes an appearance. For the second straight week, George Alfaro shuts up some of the individuals that think that two three weeks of his performance is going to generalize to the rest of his to the rest of his career quite frankly even at this very young age 300 even took a walk this week so he obp is at 333 he's slugging 600 and ops of 933 he got two homers and then again he's always going to strike out he has 10 k's to one walk george afro continues to show you that he can be a primary catcher he had those three weeks, almost a full month of awful baseball. And I fully understand that. But when you can supply the defense he has and when you can have these these uh, these crucial streaks where you show the type of player you are, the hope is that with age and maturity and development, those streaks become longer, longer, longer until you finally have a consistent catcher and backstop leading the rebuild and leading the competitive team moving forward for the Marlins. The third player to consider this week is Harold hitting Ramirez. Hit 270, slugged 500, OPS almost at 800. Collected seven hits throughout this week. He also had two home runs. Both were solo shots, but I don't care. He's showing you power production. Also struck out eight times. Also did not walk. Him and Castro had very similar lines. This team needs to learn how to walk more. Uh, just a side note. I, I, I'm not breaking anyone's mind here. They need to learn how to take more walks. They need to learn from Isan Diaz. Because if this team walks more, they have okay contact ability up and down the lineup. And they're starting to develop a little bit more power, especially when Brian Anderson is there, George Afro, Isan Diaz, for what it's worth, still has power. He's still hitting warning track shots. They get caught right there in Marlins Park. They need to learn how to walk more. Now, if you ask me, I'm probably going to give it to Starlin Castro this week. Some of you might give it to George Alfaro. I think Starlin gets it this week for me because, quite frankly, when you're able to continue being the leader and continue hitting, I've been waiting for this hot streak to finish. It hasn't finished. 
It came at the wrong time of the year, I can guarantee you that. But he has at least, like I said, presented himself at the table for being part of the future of the Marlins, even if it's as a buyout, has to be as a buyout, and then as a one-year deal or a two-year deal. It's someone that you could bring back. Starlin Castro, hitter of the week. Now, for our overall numbers for the year, and then we'll get out of here. Again, the, the, the listener said, listen, I love everything that you do. I love the fact that you have hitters of the week in these weekly segments. But what are some of the numbers that you're looking at for the entire year? Well, I'm going to give you the OPS, the on-base plus slugging. But it works very well with weighted runs. Well, I can never see it. It's like it was weighted runs created plus, as well as many of the other meaningful offensive values that you might discuss. There's a top five, and for qualified hitters, we're taking 300 at-bats this year. And the top five is without a doubt promising. It's not perfect, <laughs> okay? It's not even good. Because what you'll see with OPS is uh, when we're looking throughout a year, so not just a specific year, but throughout years, Fangraphs uses an OPS of 710 as average. If we were to use 710 as average, the next five players, the top five that I'm about to give you would all be above average. Uh, fifth is Harold Ramirez. Harold Ramirez's OPS is 717, so that would be above average. But remember why I'm going to. Remember the fact that I'm saying but, and I'll explain to you why after I'm done with this list. So if we were going with 710 as the average, Harold Ramirez, which is number five, would already be above average, which means we have five hitters above average for OPS. Harold Ramirez, 717. Number four, George Alfaro comes in. He's hitting 725 when we're looking at OPS. Number three, Miguel Rojas hitting 728. Number two, Garrett Cooper, hitting 766. You see there's a big difference there between three and two. Garrett Cooper really is actually providing you offensive value, and I'm going to explain why in a second. The but is going to be explained in a second. And then number one should be no surprise. I'm going to let you go ahead and say it in your car or wherever you Who do you think is leading the Marlins with at least 300 at-bats and OPS? Brian Anderson, over 800, 811 well above average almost 100 points above average but the average is very different this year see Fangraphs uses the 710 as a consistent barometer of ops where over a few years the average should be around 710 but that is not the case this year the average this year is in the 760s meaning that the marlins would only have two hitters with an above-average on-base plus slugging. in Brian Anderson at 811, and Garrett Cooper at 766. Two hitters throughout the year that are above league average for 2019. Now, whether we believe the theory that there's issues with the baseballs, that the power numbers are all up, which there is actually some counter-effective evidence for that that there actually really is not that much of a difference. But we'll get into that another time. That'll be an off-season special. If you believe that the baseballs are different, let me tell you something. Marlins Park will deal with that, which is the one thing that we could say is kind of a, a coddling effect when I'm trying to say that only two hitters are over league average for this year, is the fact that those hitters here in Marlins Park still work at Marlins Park. And it doesn't matter how much you affect the baseball if you're still trying to hit it out of Marlins Park. I think it's an effective counter. However, it still remains true 
that you only have two hitters above league average for the year 2019. Now, if you buy into the fan graphs theory and you believe that numbers do stabilize and that offensive numbers will come back, the outlook's a little bit more promising because then you suddenly have five in Anderson, Cooper, Rojas, Alfaro, and Ramirez who are above league average OPS. So you do with that information whatever you feel inclined to do so. I think that it's still disappointing, the results. I think that it's going to get a lot better. My belief is that by next year, we have five that are over league average even of that year. My belief is that by 2021, it's not even a conversation because at that point, you're talking about competitive baseball. You're talking about something totally different. But for this year, when we're talking about overall numbers, that's kind of where we're at. We're at the point where maybe if you discuss one point a little bit differently, it could look positive. If you use fan graph stabilization range, it can be positive. But if you do the simple task of comparing it to what hitters are doing this year, what you're seeing is what we're seeing and what the stats tell us. The Marlins have two good hitters, above average hitters, and that's it. Brian Anderson and Garrett Cooper. Will it get better? Absolutely. Will George Alfaro, Harold Ramirez, and some others be a part of this plan? I think so. I believe so. But make no mistake, your eyes aren't deceiving you when you know that the Marlins have to do a better job of putting bat to ball, of not swinging outside of the strike zone, of improving a plate approach, of not being one of the worst offenses in baseball. Are the pieces there? Yes, and it's telling that even whether you use fan graph stabilization range of 710 or you use your average of this year, the top five are still the same. And guess what? Every single one of those is someone who will be here next year. Every single one of those is someone, aside from maybe Rojas, that you consider a future core piece. Every single one has a place in the Marlins' rebuild. And that is something that 1.75 years into the rebuild with the understanding that the pitching is where it is, I'm excited and I'm proud of. It has to get better. I believe that it will. All right, everyone. Like I start off with, stay safe during Hurricane Dorian. I hope that you're hearing this after and that you are already well. And then I guess back to work, whether you want to be back to work or not. Continue sending me questions. Continue giving me the feedback. Continue sending me the emails. I appreciate it. I love it. Look for some more special guests as we move forward into the offseason. I'm also going to be detailing shortly what to look for in the offseason, whether we're going to keep the episodes once a week or we're going to go twice a week or once a month. You give me your feedback on that as well, what you would want, what you would prefer. Let me know and we'll make it happen. Go Fish.